This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only Legal Talk Network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Alan Pierce. I'm an attorney at Pierce Pierce and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And today we're bringing you yet another edition of Workers' Comp Matters with our guest, Professor John F. Burton, Jr. Before we get into our topic, uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer, practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And PI Now, find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. Those of you who are listeners to Workers' Comp Matters and are familiar with the topic, the broad topic of workers' compensation, perhaps Professor Burton needs no introduction. I can't think of anybody who is more widely known and has written more and uh, been an expert on the field of workers' compensation for probably over 50 years. Uh, I want to just give our audience a little bit of background. John Burton is a professor emeritus in the School of Management and Labor Relations at Rutgers University and professor emeritus in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell. He has conducted research, served as a consultant, assisted with the formulation of public policy, has consulted with many, many states as well as foreign countries in the area of workers' compensation, and even today is still a prolific commentator, writer, scholar, and expert in the field of, of workers' comp. He is a lawyer. He started out, as he may recollect, as we uh, begin our discussion, as an engineering student, found uh, in short order that uh, perhaps he wasn't cut out for engineering, and uh, he went into the field of economics and somehow found his way into workers' comp. Perhaps uh, Professor Burton is most known for his role as chair of the National Commission on State Workmen's Compensation Laws, which was enacted as part of the OSHA legislation under President Nixon in 1970, and the National Commission delivered its uh, report to President Nixon and Congress in 1972. And that is just a bare uh, tip of the iceberg of the uh, prolific career of Professor John Burton. And John, I really have looked forward to this show for a long time, and I want to thank you for being a guest uh, today on Legal Talk Network. Well, I'm pleased to be here, Ella. I've known you for a long time, and we've been good friends, and it's it's fun to do this kind of a, of a program with you. Yeah, there is so much area that we could cover in a short period of time, but what I really would like to do is is sort of go back in history, your history a little bit, and how did Professor John Burton actually come into the field of workers' comp? And I, I know you were kind enough to send me a little biographical information, and you, too, were somebody who may have had a, a brief introduction to workers' comp with an injury yourself. Well, right? that's true. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I, I, I normally don't put that down, but it, it, you kind of forced me to... Recall the, all all the aspects of the thing. I was I I was working in a hardware store in high school, and the last day of work, I was going around, and we had a hand drawn elevator, and uh, the the procedure was to make sure that the lock was on, that the in inside the elevator, the keys are rolled up and down, and so 
I was talking to a friend, a co-worker, and I backed into the elevator elevator to pull this brake on, and it turns out the elevator wasn't on that floor. It was on the floor right. up. So I fell down an elevator shaft and uh, knocked myself out, but eventually came to and was taken, went home, and then I didn't feel very good at night, and they took me to the hospital, and I had a checkout, and I was fine. So Never, never lost any time. Just uh, it was, but uh, in retrospect, I was damn lucky that that wasn't hurt more seriously because they certainly yeah. pulling down a little bit of shift is not exactly a way to uh, celebrate your youth. No, I guess that's what we call a med only claim, not a lost time claim. Yeah, med only claim, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. So you know, I, I gave you a, a you know kind of a brief introduction, and and uh, indeed sure. you may have started out in engineering. But what drew you to the field of economics and labor relations? Well, I transferred from engineering at the uh, Case Institute of Technology uh, into Cornell, and Cornell has a School of Industrial Labor Relations. Um, I was into that school. It turns out that I really became very interested in the labor field in general, and uh, economics, the law, and the history was all taught in that school. And uh, when I decided to, when I graduated, I tried to figure out what to do and decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I'd been on a debate team, and uh, you know, I guess that's a natural place for people to go to, who are debaters. And so I went off to Michigan Law School, and I'd have to say, in all honesty, uh, it uh, engineering was not very interesting, and law was even worse. So <laughs> I decided pretty quickly I didn't want to be a practicing lawyer. However, because of my background in labor, I was working for a law professor who was doing a lot of arbitration. And that really appealed to me that you know I could make a contribution as an arbitrator, and so I uh, stayed through law school, got a got the degree uh, for various reasons. My wife was halfway through a graduate program, and I, when I graduated from law school, and so I stayed on a year to get a master's degree in economics. The plan was, and planned to make that part of my arbitrator's career, but it turned out that. If uh, engineering wasn't my calling and law wasn't my calling, economics was. So I stayed in the program, got a PhD in economics, and so I've been kind of a, a hybrid, if you will, of you know, law and economics through my career. And I got into workers' compensation kind of a by serendipity, which is essentially the way that these other things happen, you know, how I get from Case to Cornell and so on. Um I was working on a, my exams in, in the PhD field. In the meantime, somebody picked up the topic I thought I was going to write on, which was minimum wage laws. And when I got through with my exams and started to go back to the topic, I found this friend of mine had inadvertently picked up the same topic I was. So I was searching around for a topic. And it turns out that the Upjohn Institute, located in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which has been a major publisher of of books in the labor relations or unemployment insurance and so on, had sponsored a series of studies of the competitive environment of Michigan. And they had, they've sponsored studies on taxes and wages and transportation costs and so on. And by the time I looked at the list from Upjohn, the only one that was left on the uh, list of that hadn't been chosen by somebody else was workers' compensation or workmen's compensation, as it was known then. So I, even though I had taken a course in workers' comp, or to some extent an undergraduate, I didn't know much about the field. 
I started reading about workers' compensation, and somehow it just clicked. It was very interesting to me. It's remained as interesting for over, I don't know, since since the 1950s, a long time. Yeah. So I wrote a dissertation on uh, the interstate differences in workers' compensation costs and their significance, and uh, that's how it, you know it was by sheer luck that I got into workers' compensation. But once I was in, I, I was kind of in for for a lifetime run on that field. In fact, I'm looking at the title of your dissertation, The Significance and Causes of the Interstate Differences in the Employer's Costs in Workmen's Compensation. That could probably be a title today because I think, as we'll get into later in the show, uh, the differences in costs among and between the states uh, are a major factor in what we're seeing now in changes uh, or not changes to workers' comp statutes. It's this this competition uh, between geographical right. close states and the desire to attract business or to keep business from, from going next door. All right, so let's get back. You, you, you uh, were at Cornell. Now, was it at Cornell? I, I believe Professor Arthur Larson, who also probably needs no introduction, the author of the, the treatise in the very early 50s, which is still the Bible, uh, that those of us yes. who practice near. Was he at Cornell when you were there? He had left Cornell and had gone to, actually originally, um, University of Pittsburgh as a, as a dean, and then he went on to the federal government and was working in the Eisenhower administration. When I first heard him speak at Cornell, he came back as, as okay. a former professor and talked about, he had recently published a book called uh, A Modern Republican Looks at His Party or something like that. And um, I went to hear him speak um, as a have indicated in other things I've written, I was on the verge, I was raised as a Republican and have been a Republican all my life, but this is the one time I came close to switching to be a Democrat because a friend of mine on the debate team at at Cornell was trying to convince me that I should become a Democrat and vote for Edley Stevenson. And um, I went to hear Larson speak, and he so persuaded me that the Republican Party was uh, such a great institution that I decided to stay with the Republican Party, and uh, so Arthur Larson essentially was the key person in convincing me to be a Republican all my life, which had a, uh, an impact later in my life, which, which we'll get into. But the point yeah. is that Larson was a very distinguished person. He was Undersecretary of Labor and uh, very well known in the legal profession because he had this, he had just started this treatise on workers' compensation, which incidentally I still subscribe to mm-hmm. after all these years. So it's it is for me the a, a dominant uh, feature of my education in workers' compensation has been the Larson treatise. So that's how I got started in this. And, and at Cornell as an undergraduate, as I say that's what saved me to be a a, a Republican. Mm-hmm. Now, as fate would have it, uh, Larson, after he left the Eisenhower administration, became a professor at uh, Duke University. In the law school faculty there, and uh, he he was working on his treatise, and he was also active in the Republican Party. But in 1964, I believe it was, he became he was dissatisfied with the Republican nominee for president, who was Barry Goldwater, and so Arthur uh, became national co-chairman of Republicans for Johnson. Uh, Johnson, obviously, being the Democratic candidate who successfully won that election. So Arthur, uh, I thought that was a 
in, in retrospect, uh, amazingly courageous thing to do because he knew it was going to jeopardize in some ways his, you know, his attractiveness, his, his ability to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that when we got to 1971, which is when the National Commission's membership was put together by the by the White House, uh, you mean, as you mentioned, I was chair of the chairman. We have to date these things. It's, right. It used to be called workmen's compensation. When I was there, I was a chairman, and we don't do that anymore. But it, the reason I got picked was Arthur was was the obvious candidate to be person. He should have been the chair of the National Commission. He was, you know, he was a Republican. He was a leading legal scholar and best known person in the field. But he was blacklisted. Yeah, a little too much, too much of a moderate Republican. Yeah, because uh-huh. he had come out and and supported uh, Johnson. So I was, you know, the statute said that um, had a list of categories of people who could be on the commission, and one of the categories with was educators with expertise in workers' compensation. Well, if you looked across the country, there were only two of us who were Republicans who were experts in workers' compensation. I may be exaggerating slightly, but I think that's probably pretty close to it. There were other scholars in workers' compensation, but as far as I know, I was the only, Arthur and I were the only Republican ones, and he was he was blackballed, and so the, the choice then came down to, it was pretty easy to pick the one person who was a legitimate Republican who was um, also a legitimate scholar in workers' compensation. So I got picked to be on the commission and was picked to be chair. Now, this commission was established as part of the OSHA law in 1970, right. and if I'm not mistaken, right. it, it consisted of three cabinet-level members of the administration and then 15 members from the industry uh, appointed by the president right. uh, to do a comprehensive study of the state's workmen's compensation laws. Now. You know, we look at the field of workers' comp now that we, you know, it's been over 100 years in the United States. 1911, I think, has been credited as the year that it, it began officially in terms of uh, a constitutionally upheld state workers' comp law. So if we, if we look at this 107, 108-year period, I think we can look at and now look back and see various eras. And um, I suppose we can look at 1972 and the report as perhaps the end of one era and beginning of the other, of the next era. Uh, tell right. us what the world of workmen's comp, workers' comp, was like pre-1972, pre-1970, that would have inspired probably not who you would think would be a progressively labor-oriented president, such as Richard Nixon, to appoint a national commission, which I understand was uh, was done at the request of Jacob Javits, another Republican, perhaps, of a more moderate right. bent in terms of uh, labor relations. So what was the lay of the land pre-1970? Well, I think there was a lot of concern about uh, workers' compensation. Um, the The program had been the first social insurance program, as you say, started in 1911, and it wasn't until the 1930s that other social insurance programs became very very important. Unemployment insurance had had existed perhaps before the 30s, but it was never uh, as dominant as the Social Security system itself. So Yeah, the New Deal. Yeah, the New Deal. The New Deal changed things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and one other thing that's relevant in terms of the story of workers' compensation is that the legal system or the legal constraints that existed in 1911 
were such that the program had to be started at the state level because the Supreme Court had interpreted the Commerce Clause in a way that prohibited federal government from regulating interstate commerce so far as it was affected by labor matters. And it wasn't until the 1930s um, that uh, Jones Lockett's Steel case uh, essentially reversed that longstanding doctrine and indicated that the federal government could regulate uh, labor markets. And that's why uh, among other things, the National Labor Relations Act, the Basic Collective Bargaining Act, was possible only because the Supreme Court had changed its view on what was constitutional for the federal government to do. Now, workers' compensation was already in place as a state system and could have been, presumably, from that point on, made a federal program. And indeed, OSHA, just to follow the point of federal standards, prior to 1970, the states were pretty much in control of, this, of the safety, workplace safety. And uh, OSHA essentially revolutionized the way we handled workplace safety and allowed the federal government to essentially take over the safety programs. Now, states, if they meet certain standards, can take control of their own state program is subject to they have to be as as good a program as a, as a what's in OSHA but workers compensation stood out as the only um, program by 1970 that was still basically a social insurance program or protective labor legislation program that was almost exclusively controlled by the states and I think what happened was uh, although it had been around for 50 years at least by then. In the post-World War II period, the states uh, had pretty well neglected workers' compensation. And indeed, if you look at the level of cash benefits in workers' compensation as of 1972, they were low, lower relative to the state's average weekly wage than they had been at the end of the Depression. So we had gone through, although there were some states that were improving their laws, in fact, overall, there has been deterioration in the adequacy of cash benefits in workers' compensation. And there were some other features of workers' compensation that were also lagging behind. Uh, Coverage was nowhere near as extensive as it was in the UI program, for example, even though the UI program has a large element of state control. Workers' comp had lagged behind in expanding its coverage to various kinds of employers. So I think Javits had picked up essentially a concern that was fell through the progressive part of the of the of the world and or the country, and figured that workers' compensation deserved a careful look. I think in, in Javits' view, it probably his his view was it probably should have federalized the program. So that's where the that's that's the starting point. Incidentally, Javits is kind of an interesting figure. It used to be it in the early 1970s. You, you may remember this. Javits was, was a dominating figure in the Senate. The joke was, in a sense, that there were four parties in the in in the U.S. Senate. There was uh, Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, Republicans, and Javits. And because he was a dominant figure in foreign affairs, he was a dominant figure on, on U.S. political events. So that the fact that Javits was behind this commission explains why it was created. Mm-hmm. Nixon, I think, was not enthused about the fact that there was a national commission. And indeed, 
as we can talk about in a moment, the outcome of the National Commission was not something that the Nixon administration necessarily supported. Although one would have to say, it's interesting, if you look at the Occupational Safety and Health Act itself, when it was passed in 1970, it had very strong support from both Republicans and Democratic parties, carried with large majorities in the House and the Senate, and was supported by the White House. So it's hard to imagine that kind of environment anymore where you would have bipartisan support across both both houses and plus the president supporting a progressive piece of legislation. But that is, in fact, what OSHA was. To be sure, within a couple of years, uh, OSHA became much more controversial as it began to be applied, and it became obvious what the thing what it was about. But initially, OSHA was strongly supported, and one of the things that was hanging over the National Commission when we were appointed was we had representatives primarily from insurance industry employers, state agencies, and so on, a few labor people, uh, but mainly it was dominated by relatively conservative uh, folks. And they were very concerned that the example that had been set by OSHA, which was to federalize the state programs, was going to happen to workers' compensation. And that was an issue that was hung over our heads for that, that whole year. Now, what happened during the year was it was a fascinating experience. We had a dozen hearings and meetings, at least a dozen around the country, and also commissioned a lot of studies and had experts come in and talk to us. And I think all of us were surprised at how bad the system was. Uh, we knew there were problems with the system, but when we got out and began to hear stories about people being permanently and totally disabled and running out of their benefits after three or four years and then being thrown into welfare because there was no workers' comp benefits uh, longer than that. And the fact that, as I say, the benefits, cash benefits were not high. In fact, the maximum weekly benefit in most states as of 1970 was below the national poverty level for a family of four. So we had a really interesting experience over that year of people who were on this commission became very much friends and uh, colleagues and believers that something needed to be done here. And uh, what we did was end up with a recommendation that there should be some federal standards for the state program that we had 19 of our recommendations were designated as essential. And we said that uh, our recommendation was that the states should be given three years to bring their laws up to compliance with those essential recommendations. And if they didn't, then the federal government should intervene in the form of congressional mandates, a federal law that would establish standards for these state programs. And this, of course, is something the insurance industry did not want, was federal standards. Well, I would say the commission actually had representatives from the insurance industry. I think people were convinced, and this is my own view on this thing, that they were so concerned about how badly the program was operating that something pretty drastic needed to be done. And federal... None of us, well, I shouldn't say none of us, a couple of the labor representatives would have 
supported a federal program to get rid of all the state programs. But I think the um, insurance industry, in fact, along with employers on the commission, voted in favor of these federal standards. We had 18 members. It was a unanimous vote for federal standards and workers' compensation. Again, hard to believe, yeah. given the current political environment, that you could ever get it, people on the diverse viewpoints to support something like this unanimously. And it obviously caught the attention of a lot of people. When our report came out, it was a front-page story of the New York Times. And um, as I was often pointed out, that the same front page also had a little story below our story talking about this strange break-in at, at this hotel in Washington that um, the Democratic National Committee had been burglarized of course, that led on to the Watergate scandal, and as I've often said, it's the only time in history that workers' compensation was given more press attention than, than the Watergate thing. Yeah, I think, yeah, your story was above the fold, and the Watergate story was below the fold in the front page, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Before we move off the uh, National Commission, you mentioned there was 15 members. Uh, you know, there was, there's one yeah. member that I, I personally knew, or peripherally knew, and that, that was a lawyer, a claimant lawyer. Uh, Sam Horovitz. Sam was from Boston. He was a Harvard-trained mm -hmm. lawyer. He took up the mantle of representing injured workers back in the 20s yep. when nobody, very few people were doing it. And if they were doing it, they were doing it pro bono. They were doing it out of law clinics. And he, without going into elaborate detail, Sam established the National Association of Compensation Claimant Attorneys, NACA, in the late 40s, which really mm -hmm. brought the practice of workers' comp law from the claimant's perspective really into the 20th century. It allowed an exchange of information. It published the NACA Journal. It professionalized the practice, and it allowed us to, us, our parents and grandparents, to communicate and learn from each other across state lines for essentially very provincial state laws. Sam was a member of the commission. Because I was a claims adjuster back then, and I had cases with Sam's office, and I knew what a character he was, and I also audited his course on workman's comp and admiralty and related fields at Suffolk Law School. He was quite a character. I, my memory of him was uh, then an older man, uh, probably in his 70s or, or, or maybe even a little older, with this battered briefcase and, you know, his brain was working a lot faster than his mouth. What was he like as a member of the commission and perhaps the only really you would say, progressive, if not socialist-leaning member of, of the commission. How did he interact with uh, these other folks, the Liberty Mutual executives and the business and industry folks? Yeah. I think, actually, people thought he was a bit of a character and really liked him. I, one of the things that your comments made me think about, one of his favorite expressions was when somebody would propose something that he didn't like, he'd say, well, that's a snare and a delusion. And that was it. Was, he must have said that 50 times or 100 times during the work of the National Commission, but and he, he, ended he would up say that. The, he, yeah, he would say that in law school class as well. I remember, I remember that phrase, a snare and a delusion. Yeah, yeah, that's a snare and a delusion. And uh, yeah. well, I tell you, the other thing that the other person that I think you were knew about or knew of certainly uh, was Mel Bradshaw, who was at the time I think executive vice president of Liberty Mutual, the biggest workers' comp carrier at the time, certainly. Mm -hmm. And if you want to think about supporting the federal standards in what the insurance industry was, we had a, it was an interesting history on this, a little digression here, but on on how the commission operated. We had this commission that 
would meet in the mornings in Washington, and then people would go off, to, all the members would go off and have lunch with their constituencies, and then they'd come back after lunch, and they'd back away from the agreements we'd make in the morning. And so this became a, a kind of a, a problem. And when we got to the point, critical point in the commission's life where we had a federal standards issue hadn't been talked about, I wanted to get into that topic, and I didn't really think it made sense for have people run off to lunch and get themselves chewed up for even thinking about this. So Dan Doherty was a, a member of the commission who was a, from uh, Delaware, sorry, from uh, from Maryland, managed to get the governor's boat, governor's yacht. And so we had a meeting on the governor's yacht, and, and we went out in Chesapeake Bay or whatever it was and ended up going to a little town called think, Columbia and had lunch there. And we were isolated. Nobody could talk to their constituents and get their, you know, get their views changed. And so we tentatively reached agreement that we were going to have a federal standard. Now, I often thought about the fact in this day and age, if you, you know, this is before cell phones or internet and so on, the fact that we were 100 miles away from Washington and people, and there was hardly any phones. There were no phones on the boat. We made sure of that. Nobody could contact their constituencies to make sure that. You know, they were following the party line. And we so we agreed tentatively to these federal standards at, on this trip on the boat. And then this is our next to last meeting. The last meeting, we had a retreat, a former CIA retreat out in, um, out in Virginia. Though we had only a few, very few landline phones and, of course, no cell phones or anything. And when we were out there, we were also pretty isolated, and it was deliberately done to make sure we, you know, we could hold ourselves together. Between the, the next to last meeting on the boat and this final meeting, the word had gotten back to the White House that we were thinking about federal standards, and so there was some pressure. Contact was made with several of our members, and to try to persuade them that we don't want federal standards in workers' compensation. Uh, that was just too revolutionary of an idea. Mm-hmm. The person that held it together was Mel Bradshaw from uh, Liberty. Liberty Liberty Mutual, Mutual. the executive vice president. So, you know, this is your earlier point about the insurance industry didn't really like federal standards. Mel Bradshaw and the other insurance people on the commission, I think, were convinced that, to put it in my terms, the conservative solution here was actually to have federal standards. Because if you didn't do something like that, the system itself was going to self-destruct because there was this inner this competition among states, and as you've seen in some things I've sent you, I actually was an issue that I had identified in my dissertation back in the, published in '65 that the real flaw, if you will, of workers' compensation in this country is that it is a state-run system, and that employers are constantly trying to convince legislators that if you don't have a low workers' compensation premiums or rates, the state's going to lose all the employers. They're not going to be able to attract anybody, and those of us who are here are going to run away. And so it became a uh, a real force. It was in existence uh, before before I wrote my dissertation in 65. It was certainly an issue that was quite aware to the National Commission members when we wrote our report in 72, and there's a long discussion of the specter of the vanishing employer in in the report and how this was driving legislators to 
even legislators who had good intentions about the things got in a sense of bamboozled into saying if we don't cut our benefits or cut coverage or something, we're going to lose all our employers because they're going to move to state X, state Y. You can always find some other state that had lower rates than yours, uh, pretty much. So it was easy enough to raise that specter. Now, I, my dissertation, I had looked at this issue pretty carefully and found that the differences among states in cost after you adjust for industry mix and so on, was really trivial. You know, half a percentage point on average of payroll uh, at most among the states in terms of the average employer. Now, obviously, some extreme cases go beyond that. But by and large, I felt then, I felt now, and the National Commission felt that in, there was no reason you couldn't have a state system under the control of the states without having this runaway employer thing, but the specter was so dominating a factor in state legislatures that you had to do something to convince states that that they had to have decent laws, or you're going to have this race to the bottom, essentially. Mm-hmm. Every state's going to figure out they got to keep cutting their benefits or certainly not increase them, or they're going to lose their employers. And... So that was a dominant, that was an explanation that we gave in the report, and it's it at the time was persuasive to everybody on the commission, unanimous report, and I think they bought into this because they saw it. I mean, we were ground to various states. This is part of the outcome of our hearings that, in fact, you would find states saying, you know, we've got a lousy law here, but we were, you know, we can't increase it because our next door neighbor state has got even worse laws. And if we increase our laws to make them a decent law, we're going to lose all our employers in that other lousy state. So then that's what that's the rationale for federal standards, and I think it's still a rationale for federal standards. Mm-hmm. There was a, a period after the commission report came out for a year or two, I would say, that we had a pretty good consensus among insurance and employers and so on. The federal standards were okay, but that consensus broke down. In part, ironically, because Javits and Senator Williams from New Jersey introduced legislation before our three-year period was up, we'd say they'd give the states three years, and the, the laws were so overboard in terms of what the federal standards are going to be. Faith healers, for example, who had to be protected. Every state had to allow faith healers to operate. I mean, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And John Lewis was the vice chair of the Council of the National Commission, and I testified in Congress against the Williams and Javits bill, and then so it 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 kind of floundered there in the fifties and in the seventies. The administration was in since fighting our recommendations in in terms of uh, there was an interdepartmental task force that was appointed uh, that was operating under Ford that were actually. Um, essentially was a way of holding off federal standards. And then by the time eventually we got to 1980, the, the political environment changed so much that essentially in the 80s, the system held steady. A few states improved their laws, a few cut their laws, but costs were going down for the first half of the 1980s. All right. You know, John, this, this might be a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'd like to talk about the next era post the uh, 72 report, the, the era. So uh, right now we're going to take a quick break for some messages from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with uh, Professor Burton. 
Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, Case Pacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Case Pacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network with uh, my guest, Professor John Burton. Uh, we left off with the published commission report, and I guess if we were to look at uh, the first 40 or 50 or 50 half century of workers' comp as the era before the 1970 to 1972 study, we now have 45 or more years post-1972. And looking back here now at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, I think we can identify two significant eras after 1972. And John, I think you might refer to the first period after the commission's report as the Reformation period, which probably went from 1972-ish to perhaps the end of the 80s, beginning of 1990. In a, a short era, uh, amount of time, what transpired in this so-called Reformation period insofar as the state of workers' comp around the country? I think that the states responded um, partly out of fear of them, that there were going to be federal standards and partly because I think the National Commission laid out a fairly clear set of recommendations that we considered essential in terms of almost entirely focusing on the adequacy and duration of cash benefits because those that was the main problem we saw at the time. And states vastly improved their laws. I mean, when we when we were the statistics show that, you know, when the in nineteen seventy the majority of states the maximum weekly benefit was less than a hundred dollars a week, below the national poverty standard. By the late seventies, most states had actually improved their their maximum weekly benefits so that they were at least 100% of the state's average weekly wage, which was vastly greater than it had been a decade earlier. Yeah, let me give you an example. I was just getting into the field in 1969-70-71, and uh, my memory mm -hmm. was that the state maximum in Massachusetts, keeping in mind Massachusetts was and is probably a more progressive state labor-wise uh, than many others around the country. Back when I was a claims adjuster the and before the commission issued its report, our maximum weekly benefit, the most an injured worker could collect regardless of what his or her wage was, I think was $77 a week. It might have gone up to $90 or $95 a week. Once the commission report came out and one of the essential recommendations was that the maximum benefit should be 
tied into the state average weekly wage, either at 100% or even 200% of the average wage. Massachusetts average wage in the mid-70s, right after the report, was around, I think, $212 a week. So we went up as a result of the report of the commission from just under $100 a week to $212 a week. And then it it steadily, you know, being indexed to the state average wage, we went from the 200s into the 300s. And of course, now it's uh, here in Massachusetts over $1,000 a week. So we had this period of states in an effort to comply with as many of these 19 essential recommendations as possible to stave off the threat of a federal takeover. We saw for the period of maybe the first 15, 20 years an increase of benefits around the country. Now, as a result of that, I was not great in economics. Uh, I did Ec 101, and that's as far as I went. But when you raise benefits, something else happens, and and that became apparent as we got into deep into the 1980s, and that was what? Rising cost of insurance, correct? That's right, although it's interesting because the first half of the 80s, the costs were going down. Mm-hmm. What happened in, in the... I don't think we quite know all the... Th- explanations of what happened from, say, 87 on, but whatever it was, uh, cost started going up pretty rapidly. Now, one of the factors was, historically, workers' compensation, two-thirds, at least, of the benefits had been cash benefits, and the other was medical benefits. And that started to spike. And and that started to spike in the the late um, 70s, and it was driven in part by the fact that there was a lot of concern about health care costs outside of workers' compensation. And so you had a whole bunch of reforms that went that started in the in the in the eighties, the late eighties, in the general health care system, limitations of certain courts, deductibles, coinsurance, preferred provider organization, other kinds of managed care, and workers' compensation didn't initially have any of those things. And mm-hmm. so if you had a marginal case, say a back case, where maybe there was an issue of whether it's work-related or not, uh, there was a lot of pressure on workers to get that case into workers' compensation because the medical benefits and workers' comp were still an old system that kind of paid pretty much the full cost of the medical care. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, in the, if it wasn't work-related, you're going to end up having a deductible and so on. And right. it also it was the case that practitioners, the doctors, much preferred to have these cases in workers' comp because they were going to higher payments, too, right. than if it was treated as a, a non-occupational injury. Um, so I think that the we, we got a lot of shifting of cost of health care that really kind of started to drive the system cost up in the late mm-hmm. 80s. And we saw that we we saw that in Massachusetts, and we saw that uh, yeah. you know the Massachusetts miracle, which brought Mike Dukakis to prominence, shortly thereafter suffered the you know the the effects that, that other states had around the country, and all of a sudden, workers' comp costs and premiums were yep. really high in Massachusetts, and that it was not unusual, and that I guess might have begun the 
the second era. We had the Reformation, mm-hmm. right. and now we have the Counter-Reformation yeah. period, which Counter-Reformation, guess, right. yep. yeah, started around 19... I feel like we're talking about Christianity, the history of Christianity in the Middle Ages here, but well, we had this... It, it, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to take the analogy too far, but um, you know there are yep. some, uh, some parallels there. But, and so we, we have been in, and we're probably right, still in this Counter-Reformation period. It's been now maybe 25, yep. 28 years that we've seen the, right. the yep. pendulum shift the other way. So give us a you know a brief overview of of the reaction to uh, the 80s. Well, I think I think that you you put your finger on the uh, what what I would call you know what I'm my concern is is that since the, since about 1990, a combination of factors took place. Um, you, you had costs going up rapidly in workers' compensation. You also had in the early 80s a regulated workers' comp insurance industry which meant that insurance commissioners had a great deal of influence on what rates were going to be approved. And it turns out that in a lot of states, insurance commissioners did not approve the rate filings that were necessary to keep the insurance industry solid. And so from a period of what, six or seven or eight years from in the late 80s and early 90s, the workers' comp insurance industry was losing money, including after you took into account investment income. And that really set the alarms off, bells off for the insurance industry because they, you know, they just couldn't afford to do that. And so you had a shift in the political environment. Incidentally, it also one of the consequences of this is that the insurance industry and workers' comp has essentially now been deregulated in almost every state, so that we no longer would have the possibility of uh, insurance commissioners holding down rates uh, if they're going to if they're going to go up. They they go up and. Likewise, they can go down as they have in, in many years. That was a factor. Then you had, um, as another f- factor on the, the practical factor on this thing, workers' compensation being a state-run program. Historically, this had been an issue that was of central concern to the labor movement at the state level, and so that the state level, in a number of states which had strong unions, uh, they were able to get laws passed that were relatively favorable, and to hold off adverse reforms. Well, essentially what's happened since the 1990s is the labor movement has disappeared in a lot of states. I mean, we've had a national, uh, other than the public sector, essentially we're now less than, well less than 10% of the labor force is organized. And so the politics of this change considerably in a lot of states, in states like historically were strong union states like Michigan or Connecticut, the laws well, Mass- got passed. Mass- Massachusetts, we've seen it here. Yeah, okay. Well, I was waiting yeah. for you to come in on that one. But, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, so there are a few states that still have strong labor movements. We have a relatively strong one in New Jersey. And those states have been pretty much immune from this. But essentially you got... Uh, the natural defender of a decent law wipe out politically. And then you had, in you know, the, certainly the last 10 years or so, the fact that we were in this serious recession. And a lot of the recession was, at the same time, you had deregulation taking place in a lot of industries, not just insurance, obviously, but, you know, transportation and utilities and so on, so that there was a lot more competition at the state level which I think made employers even more concerned about whether their state's law was 
low enough in terms of cost to be to allow them to remain competitive. Mm-hmm. So essentially, beginning in the late 80s and then into the 90s and certainly continuing to the present day, you've had a basically a movement that is attempting to keep the cost of workers' compensation down, successfully keeping it down, but it does so by reducing, uh, reducing the adequacy of the cash benefits. It's not so much that the maximums have been held back because most states pass this law, like you had in, had mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, which automatically increases the max. Uh, the max uh, index, index to inflation. But yeah, we the durational limits. Right. The thing that has happened since the early 90s is that the compensability issue, whether you're eligible for benefits or not, has become the point where state laws have become less and less supportive of workers. The changes and in I, causation standards, major cause yeah, as opposed to the, aggravation. You're right. right. It makes it much yeah. harder, especially for the aging workforce, to be able to maintain or sustain a workers' comp claim because all of us, as we age, are subjected to uh, the d- gradual deterioration of our bodies so that we all have some degree of degenerative disc disease, degenerative arthritis in our joints. So when we have a traumatic injury that produces a disability, we now have an increased standard of showing that the work injury continues to remain as the major cause or a major cause. So it is. It, it has cut down the amount of claims or the duration of these claims. So, you know, we are not yet at the end of the counter-reform. We're still seeing seeing benefits go down. We're seeing premiums go down. I think the costs are not out of control. We're now, I see us in another era. We, we're having trouble getting the state legislatures to react to this pendulum shift of high benefits, low benefits, increased costs, decreased costs. And I just want to touch on this briefly before we end. We're, we're sort of now in an era, at least the last two, three, four years of looking at the courts coming back into this, where legislatures right. are loath to act to increase benefits to a level somewhere between where they were and where they've been cut. We are now seeing a tipping point being reached in many jurisdictions where the constitutional argument that the workers' comp remedy is no longer a sufficient, adequate, reasonable, necessary remedy in exchange for the exclusive remedy that the employers. So we are seeing increased challenges around the country in states where people are now turning to the courts to determine whether a mm-hmm. workers' comp statute is, in effect, constitutional. You, you might Give us your thoughts on that. You've been observing this now for, for the last four, five, six years. Well, I, I, number one, I would have to say another piece that in relation with this is the fact that the legislators, the composition of state legislatures has changed it's in the changed. last 15 or 20 years. So much less more lawyers, less power yeah. Republicans. Yeah. I, I say this as a loyal Republican, but realistically, it, it's been Republican parties that have taken the lead on scaling back the availability of workers' compensation benefits. And I think the courts have have uh, struck back. And it's interesting that some of these decisions are coming out of states that are relatively conservative states. Florida, for example. There were several decisions two or three years ago mm-hmm. where the Florida Supreme Court, which is generally considered not, you know, not terribly progressive, has overturned some of the legislative changes as being unconstitutional. One of the more recent examples is Kansas, where you had uh, AMA guides, yeah, the AMA guides thrown out, and you had uh, Oklahoma, which is a yeah, very out. Yeah. conservative state, yeah, and it was allowing employers to opt out and set up their own programs that were not workers' compensation, and the Supreme Court in in uh, 
Oklahoma said that's unconstitutional. So I think there's some kickback from the court system. My own sense is it's uh, a minor salvation. Let's put it that way. We want to stay with the. It's a it's a band aid. The over, overwhelming the overwhelming movement of the last twenty years has been has been to make it workers' compensation uh, less supportive, less adequate, less equitable. And I I must say it's my own feeling is I'm kind of back to where I was in in 1960 of being pretty pessimistic about the future workers' compensation. And it's essentially, it's almost an accident that we have this this problem. The accident being when the program was started at the state level, it's always remained at the state level, even though the Constitution has changed and would allow it to be a federal program or certainly would allow a federal standard. But we've been locked into a state system, and the inherent in our competitive society is that states are going to be competing. And the way they compete is to get costs down, and the way you get costs down is to provide benefits that are less adequate and equitable for workers. And I think I'm back to where I was, as I say, in the 60s and really kind of um, um, depressed, I guess is one way to put it, or certainly pessimistic about the future of workers' compensation Mm -hmm. as being a source of protection, adequate protection for, for injured workers. Yeah, and and as we close, and I, I you know, I, again, I don't, I don't like to hear that being somebody who's invested his career, and and I want to see this system. But we, you know, we the twentieth, twenty first century is much different than the twentieth century in terms of the makeup of our workforce. So you mentioned the demise of uh, the influence of organized labor. We are now seeing a blurring of even the employer-employee relationship with these new, what we would call the changing economy. Uh, we've certainly lost the factories and industrial jobs. We are now moving into a service-oriented labor force. We're getting into robotics. We're getting into the gig economy. And we have safety nets in place that weren't in place 100 years ago. So that, you know, I think the challenge that we have, those of us who want to see this system continue to improve and succeed is to try to fit basically a 19th, early 20th century model into a 21st century economy and workforce. And that is, I think, where, you know, even if you have a crystal ball, it's going to be very difficult to predict whether we're going to be having this conversation 10, 15, 25 years from now. I think 10, 15 years from now, yes. I think if workers' comp is to go uh, to become anachronistic in our society, it's probably going to take a, a, a half a generation or more to get there. But any closing words you have, aside from maybe a general sense of pessimism about the long-term future workers' comp, at least for, oh, let's say the near term, where we're going, what we're likely to see in the next maybe 10, 15 years, whether it's opt-out or some versions thereof or some other hybrid, hybrid system? I think the opt-out is is the major threat right now because there are some states uh, that, although the law was held unconstitutional in um, Oklahoma, uh, I think there's a lot of lawyers around who are clever enough to rewrite uh, those statutes in a way that they will be found constitutional. And in Texas, which has always been a, it's been the only state that's always had an opt-in um, state, yeah, non-compulsory uh, state, opt-in, yes, right. Yeah. But it's it's a non-mandatory coverage for employers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. There is some evidence now that uh, movement in in Texas is a lot more employers are now dropping workers' compensation there, even though if you do that, you're subject to uh, tort suits. Uh, they're they're willing to take that risk and. Um, so I, I, you know, I'd love, I'd love to tell you that there's some optimistic things going on. I do think um, there are some states, 
New Jersey's law is still pretty good. Massachusetts, I think, is all right. But boy, there are, it's going to be harder and harder for these states. And then just to give an example of this thing, I've been involved in Iowa a little bit, looking at what's going on out there. Iowa was one of the few states that actually passed a law that had the maximum weekly benefit of 200% of the state's average weekly wage. Incidentally, we want to make clear to your listeners that it's not that everybody gets 200% of the state's average weekly wage. They would get, typically to simplify this, two-thirds of their own pre-injury wage or the maximum, whichever is less. Mm-hmm. So that they're, for the vast majority of workers, they don't get anywhere near 200% or even 100% of the state's average weekly wage. They get two-thirds of their own wage, which is low, a lower number. Right. Um, so I think, you know, there's, I don't know whether we're going to find another solution. I'd like to think that it's possible that uh, something else would come along. But the most obvious thing for more serious cases would be to broaden the coverage of the Social Security Disability Insurance System. But that is, seems unlikely because of it's it's in such bad financial situation itself, and Congress is not willing to allow, I think, a substantial increase in that program for fear of driving the Social Security yeah. disability insurance program into further difficulty. Um, yeah. We all talk about the old age system running out of money in 30 or 40 years. Well, the DI system is already on running deficits and serious problems, so I don't I don't think in the short run that's going to be a solution. Well, John, I want to thank you very much for for being a guest. Uh, I think we could talk about this for another hour or two without even running out of of time. Let's do this. Let's do this again in about another 10 or 15 years. You promise? I'm all for that. If not sooner. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll put it on my account. Well, I want to thank you for being a guest. I want to thank you for all you've done for all of us in the field of Workers' Comp. And for those of you who are listening, Please tune in to uh, our next edition of Workers' Comp Matters. And uh, for that, I want to just say uh, have a good day and make it a day that matters. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.